John 9. If you would like to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 9. And let's pray together. Father, as we get into your word tonight, we pray that your word would get into us, that we would be transformed by you, Jesus, and as we see you touching this blind man who was born blind, we pray that you would touch us this evening in those areas that we're deficient in, those areas that just don't seem to quite work right. And God, we know that you're gracious, that you're kind, and you're long-suffering. So Lord, would you do that work in our lives? If we're spiritually blind in some area of our lives or maybe even totally completely. Lord, would you bring us that light? Would you bring us spiritual insight? Father, you know the distinct challenges that we're facing. Lord, I pray that you would bring comfort where it's needed, wisdom where it's needed. Lord, for those that have lost jobs or are in the danger of losing jobs, we pray for your provision. God, those that are suffering physically, Lord, that you would just touch and that you would heal. Lord, we pray for those that are rejoicing tonight. We want to rejoice with them and thank you for the blessings that you're bringing into their life. We're here for one reason, Jesus, and that's to draw near to you. In Jesus' name, amen. As we go through the Gospel of John, it's important to stop and consider why did John write this Gospel? And he tells us very specifically at the end of the book, and I'll read to you from chapter 20. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So John says there's many things that Christ did in his life. You can't record them in all of the books. If you were to try to write it down, there's not enough paper to hold all that Christ did. But John focuses on seven miracles, and he also focuses on seven I am statements. And as we've journeyed through this book, we've seen many of the miracles. The first was changing water into wine, and then the healing of the official's son in Capernaum, the healing at the pool of Bethesda, the feeding of the 5,000, the walking on the water, And then now tonight, the sixth sign, which is the healing of the blind man. And remember, each one of these signs are just what the word indicates. A sign is to teach us a deeper truth about Christ. So as this blind man is healed, God is showing us the deeper truth of how we need spiritual eyes to see. And then there's seven I am statements. We've read the bread of life. I am the bread of life. And then also, I am the light of the world. And Kent did a great job job teaching through chapter 8 last week. I hope that you enjoyed that. And as we go into chapter 9, these two chapters really are best read and studied together because they both happen at the Feast of Tabernacles. And Kent painted that picture as on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, they would light those four torches. And it was at that moment that Jesus said, I am the light of the world. It brought about great opposition. Look quickly in your Bible at the very end of chapter 8. The last verse, verse 59, it says, They took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. So that event of Jesus announcing that he was the light of the world at the Feast of Tabernacles left with him 
attempting to be stoned. And then Jesus really goes on the offensive in chapter nine. He really continues the conflict and he initiates the conflict by healing on the Sabbath day and he pushes the issue. So let's get into our text. Let's look at verse one of chapter nine. Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. Jesus is on a mission. He's leaving the Feast of Tabernacles. It's been quite emotionally charged. Try to put yourself in Christ's shoes where the masses have just attempted to stone you. You've got a very real death threat. But now he's heading out of Jerusalem and he sees there this man who is born blind. And notice what it says, he saw the man. And that word saw, it really means to stop and consider. It's when someone gets your attention. And it happens to us throughout our day where all of a sudden we notice this person at the store is going through something. They're having a a hardship or it's a member in our family or it's a friend. They catch our attention. And Jesus stops and he sees this blind man. Many times people with disabilities get ignored and overlooked because there's just something uncomfortable There's something uncomfortable about someone who's blind, and for a lot of people, they don't know how to process that, and they don't see the person. All they do is they see the disability, and so they don't know what to say or what to do, and they kind of can pass by that person, and it's so hurtful to the individual, but not Jesus. He sees this man that's blind, and he stops, and he initiates, and he seeks this man out. Now he's born blind. Consider that for just a moment. Everybody talking about the color green or fall colors. Did you see the fall colors, the orange, the red? Never knowing what his mom's face looked like. As a young child, putting his hand up on his mom's face, maybe feeling a warm, hot tear come off of his mom's eyes and knowing that she's crying because of what he felt, but never being able to see a tear or to see her face. And this is his whole entire life lived in darkness. Helen Keller, this is the words of Helen Keller, who is blind. She said, gradually I got used to the silence and the darkness that surrounded me, and I forgot that it had ever been different until she came, my teacher who set my spirit free. It was her teacher that gave her a world outside of her blindness. And for this man who was born blind, there was no braille, there was no opportunity to be able to read, there was no disability for him to be able to go on, there weren't jobs for him to be able to do, all he was left to do was to beg. His existence, his physical existence was left being a beggar outside of the temple, but he's important and he's valued by Jesus. And when we study the scriptures, we have to know that Jesus hasn't changed. So we have the blind spot of our lives, the part of our lives that's deficient, the part that we don't want anyone to see. We tend to lead with our best foot forward, but Jesus sees it. And he wants to work in that area of our lives. Verse two, and his disciples asked him saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The disciples see Jesus, they see Jesus stop and looking at this blind man. And the first question that they have is who sinned, the man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, just for the record, rude. That's first and foremost, this is just plain rude because this is all an earshot of the blind guy, right? And the blind guy's hearing this 
And it would be hurtful for him to have this assumption made that somebody sinned in order for him to be born blind. And in fact, the rabbis taught, and we know this, it's recorded, that sin could actually occur in the womb. And if you sinned as a baby in the womb, then that was the cause of birth defects. Can you imagine? So you've got a little innocent baby in the womb that just messed up. There was a real rebel in the womb. And then, well, man, if you'd have just made better choices, Johnny, in the womb, you wouldn't have... It's ridiculous, isn't it? And so they're, they're really asking, did this guy do something wrong in the womb that caused him to be born blind? Or, or was it his parents that sinned? And this is the false assumption that all suffering is a result of sin. And there's some that still hold that position, don't they? That if you're suffering, it must be because you've done something wrong or your parents did something wrong. But not all suffering is because of sin. Now, sometimes it is. Sometimes we do sin and we bring difficulty upon ourselves, but also suffering is a part of being human. It falls upon the just and, and the unjust. We know from Job's life that he was walking in righteousness. It wasn't because of his unrighteousness. And so it is a false assumption to think that all suffering comes because of sin. And I hope we don't make that mistake in our lives or in the lives of others. When you see somebody going through a hard time, it would be wrong to assume that they have done something wrong. In verse three, Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Now pause for just a moment. What did Jesus just say? His blindness was no mistake to God. God created him to be blind. When God spoke to Moses at the burning bush passage in Exodus, Moses was saying, I can't go to the Pharaoh because I stutter. So I'm not gonna go speak to Pharaoh because of my tongue. And what did God say to Moses? I made your tongue and I make the blind and the lame and the mute. And there's no mistake from God. And God does these things. He allows suffering. Why? Look at verse three. What's the purpose? For his glory to be seen. So this gives us an understanding about suffering in our lives. Sometimes the car is going to break down. Sometimes the body is going to break down. Sometimes the sprinkler system is going to break down. And it's an opportunity for God to declare his glory if we'll allow it. I remember several years ago, I was just having fits with my sprinkler system. And a friend and I had tried to fix it and we made it worse. Don't you love it when that happens, right? So now you've invested time and, and money and there it is. And it was broke. So finally I had to call a repair guy to come. And he comes out and is working on the sprinkler system. And lo and behold, I got to share Christ with him. And I realized God was more concerned about this guy than my comfort or my sprinkler system, right? And see, that's the way God works. And when we get to heaven, the heavenly perspective, the eternal perspective is going to be this, is God, my temporary discomfort was worth the eternal glory of this person having the knowledge of you. Even though it's heavy, even though it's difficult, it was worthwhile in the end. Have we believed that and have we adopted that? That misery gives opportunity for ministry. And what difficulty do you find yourself in tonight and realize the Lord allowed it, the Lord's working in it, the Lord's ordained it 
for his glory to be seen by others. In verse four, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. Jesus says, I have this specific time to do the works of the Father. He's speaking of his life here on earth. The night that he's talking about is his death upon the cross. And Jesus, in his wisdom, seizes the opportunity that he has to do the works of the Father. And the same for us. As we go through our lives, we've only got one life to live, right? Whatever age you are, whatever age I am right now, we only get to do this year once. And sometimes that's a real comfort, and other times it's a real bummer, isn't it? But we've only got one life. There's only so much time to walk in obedience to the Father, to do the works of him who's sent us. In verse 5, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. So once again, Jesus makes this I am statement. First in chapter 8, now in chapter 9, I am. And it's a statement of deity going back to Moses in the burning bush when God said, I am that I am. And he says, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. So there's also an opportunity for the people that are alive during Christ's earthly ministry, that they have an opportunity in the here and now to experience Christ as the light of the world. Now put yourself in the shoes of this blind man whom Jesus is speaking to and the disciples as the blind man has never seen light. He doesn't know what that is. All he knows is darkness. And here Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world. But everything's gonna change for him this day. He's gonna see physical light and he's gonna experience the spiritual light. In verse six, when he'd said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with saliva. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. Here's the blind man. Jesus is talking. When you're blind, your ears, your senses get heightened. Your, that's the main way things are coming in. It's your portal, it's your receptacles. And you just hear Jesus <laughs> spit on the ground. And I know some of you just feel like that's extremely sacrilegious, but you read verse six. It says he spat on the ground and made clay with his saliva. That's just gross. We have a dog named Lady Lou. She's in Newfoundland. She's about 160 or 70 pounds. And they're not a real common breed, but they do drool a lot. And they get excited and those kind of things. And there was one morning this week where I was barefoot walking in the kitchen. And I go, what, what was that? And, I, and it was Lady Lou saliva, saliva on the bottom of my foot. I'm like, oh, disgusting. That's a terrible way to start the day. And for this blind man, it had to take him a little bit by surprise. Like, what is Jesus doing spitting on the ground? And that's not even the end of it. Notice he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. So now you've got this saliva, dirt, mud mixture, and it's going into your eyeballs. I mean, it's one thing for saliva to be on the bottom of your foot, and it's another thing for you to have it be in the eyeballs. And we'll see that this man is understanding who Jesus is as this thing goes. The beginning of this is there's just some guy that's saying, hey, go wash in the pool of Siloam and you will be healed. In verse 7, he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. 
Now, is God playing a cruel trick on this guy? No. Is this very purposeful for something for us to learn? Absolutely. Everything in Scripture is. There's no wasted words. There's no wasted details. Because for this blind man to go through with this experience, two things take place. There's humility and faith. First, there's humility to allow this dirt, saliva, mud mixture to be put on your eyes without getting upset. You have to really know that you have a need to allow this to happen and to take place. And you know, and I know, for Christ's working to happen in our life, there's gotta be humility. We've gotta realize that we have a need. We can't be prideful. And the second thing that we see is faith. There's faith in this man that he's got to go do this simple task of washing in the pool of Siloam. And the Temple Mount is here, and the pool of Siloam is down the hill. So it's a little bit of a walk for him to come down to the pool of Siloam. It's where the Hezekiah's tunnel would drain out, and there was the pool that was there. So he was come down out of the city, down to the pool of Siloam, and he was to wash. And then when he would wash, he would be able to see. Now, does Jesus have the power to just say, you got eyesight today, bro. You're healed. Absolutely. So God is testing him to see if he'll have the faith and the obedience to follow the most simple instruction. This should trigger something as you study the scriptures. What is it? 1 Kings 5. Naaman the leper, he comes to the prophet in Israel. He's heard of this prophet. And what does the prophet do? The prophet doesn't even come out to see this great general, this great commander, and gives the simple instruction, go to the Jordan and dip in the Jordan, how many times? Seven times. And he gets all prideful and offended and mad, saying, we've got better streams back home. I'm not gonna go do this. And the servant pleaded with him and said, look, if he would have asked you to do something hard, you would have done it. So why don't you go do the simplest of tasks? And of course he goes, he obeys, and he is healed. And this is the same kind of test for this man. Will he have the faith to go do the simplest of instruction that God's gonna work? And here's the lesson for us, catch this, is healing, deliverance, Jesus working in our lives comes from simple acts of obedience. A lot of times we wanna complicate it. Maybe it's been a long time since you felt Jesus really working in your life. Or you can say in a tangible way, I felt Christ touch me and work in and through my life. Could it be that there's a simple instruction that Jesus has asked us to do that we've put it on the shelf? It's as simple as go wash in the pool of Siloam. It's a simple task. You know it. I know it. The Lord's put it upon our hearts. Go back and do that simple task. And the healing and the deliverance and Christ's working in our lives comes as we walk in obedience to the Lord. In verse 8, Therefore the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is not this the one who sat and begged? The blind man, the beggar, where does he go first? He goes back to his home, to his parents, to his neighborhood, and he's like, I can see. I can see. I always thought you were ugly. Now I know you're ugly. <laughs> hey, I always thought you were really beautiful, and wow, now I know that, that you're beautiful. Could you imagine for that guy? I mean, have you ever listened to somebody on the radio, and you've heard them teach or whatever, and then finally get curious, and you look them up online, and you're like, 
you're nothing like what I thought you looked like, you know, right? And so this could have been the ultimate surprise for him, but he's like, green, this is green. This is what I thought green was. And, and he was just elated. So the word's getting out and people are trying to understand what's going on. In verse nine, some said, this is he. Others said, he is like him. He said, I am he. So they're having a hard time accepting this. They go, this sure looks like Joe the blind beggar that we know that's grown up in our neighborhood, but it can't be. It can't be him. I must be mistaken because nobody receives their sight when they're born blind. In verse 10, therefore they said to him, how were your eyes opened? This is a natural question that they would ask. In verse 11, he answered and said, a man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go into the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received sight. Then they said to him, where is he? And he said, I don't know. So in the midst of following these instructions and going to the pool of Siloam, he's lost Christ. He's lost the giver. In verse 13, they brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Now, it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. We don't know the motivation and why they brought him to the Pharisees, but it seems that they were stumbled over the fact that Jesus made clay on the Sabbath and told him to go and wash on the Sabbath. So all they saw was a rule breaker. This is a rule breaker of the law. We've got to now go take him to the rule keepers, which are the Pharisees. And the Pharisees did teach this, that to make clay or to wash was a breaking of the Sabbath. They had added to the Sabbath day. In verse 15, then the Pharisees also asked him again how he'd received his sight. And he said to them, he put clay on my eyes and I washed and I see. So the Pharisees are asking the same question. How did you receive your sight? Not because they're celebrating in the miracle, but they're looking for where the Sabbath day was broken. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. They never stop to ask the question if their understanding of the Sabbath is wrong. They simply accuse Jesus of being the one who is the sinner and being the lawbreaker. There's, there's no humility in them to go, maybe I've got this wrong. Maybe I've got to step back and look at that I've misinterpreted the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. So others start to say, no, no. This is, there's got to be something special about Jesus. Because not just anybody can do these signs and do these miracles. Verse 17, then they said to the blind man again, what do you say? about him because he opened your eyes. He said, he's a prophet. So what do you say about Jesus? He says, oh, he's a prophet. We look at the prophets of the Old Testament. God used those prophets to heal people. So at this point, his knowledge of Jesus is he's a prophet. And as the chapter continues, his knowledge of Christ is going to grow. I appreciate this man because he didn't back down. He knows the pressure that he's under that he's gonna be persecuted, that he could be kicked out of the synagogue and the temple because of what Christ has done in this healing, but he's gonna be true to what he's experienced. Verse 18, but Jesus did not believe, but the Jews, excuse me, did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him 
who had received his sight. And they asked them, saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? So they don't believe that he's received his sight until they call in the parents. This is a terrible way to live as we study the Gospels. I mean, we've gone through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you've been studying with us, and the Pharisees are a big part of the Gospels, of the storyline, right? And they not only miss Christ's work and the light of Christ, but they also get to the place where they wanna crucify Christ. And what we find in chapter nine is this illustration of how you respond to the light of the world. The blind man responds in receiving the light of the world, but the Pharisees are rejecting the light of the world. How do we get to this place where there's an amazing work of God in front of us and we miss it? And we don't rejoice in it, and in fact, we have the exact opposite reaction that we should is because the Pharisees never did the heart work. They never went to the inside. They were great polishers of the outside, but they were dead on the inside. And that can be our easy reaction as well. Religion will always polish the outside, but a relationship with Jesus is gonna be inside out. It's gonna be Jesus working in those deep, dark areas of our life and bringing transformation and change. In verse 20, his parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son. Yep, this is Johnny, and that he was born blind. But by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age, ask him, he'll speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So the parents don't answer honestly. They don't give what they really know and what they really think. They'd heard the testimony of their son, and if they would have answered truthfully, they would have said, Jesus did it. Jesus told them to go wash in the pool of Siloam. Jesus healed them. But what was the verdict that was given from the Pharisees? Anybody that proclaims Jesus is the Christ is put out of the synagogue. They didn't want to risk that. They feared that, so they give the political correct answer and put it back on their son. He's of age. Just go ahead and ask him. We maybe have had times in our lives because of pressure, of possible rejection, possible loss of job, and those kind of things where we don't answer honestly about Christ. And we regret those times, don't we? And I wonder for the parents if they looked back on this experience and they wondered, man, I wish that I would have opened my mouth about Jesus Christ. In verse 24, so they again called the man who was blind and said to him, give God the glory. We know this man is a sinner. They totally reject the light of Christ. It's interesting the phraseology that they use. By not giving the credit to Jesus, you're giving God the glory. So sometimes people wrap things in very spiritual language. Meanwhile, they're running Jesus Christ under the bus, totally and completely. But they're saying, we're giving God the glory by, by doing so. In verse 25, he answered and said, whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, and though I was blind, now I see. If you're a Bible underliner, this is a verse to underline. Because what does this guy do that is so wise? First is he's already called into an evangelistic setting. You know, that's our kind of fancy word for sharing your faith about Christ. 
in the very first moments that he's received Christ. And one, that's very encouraging. Because if you receive Christ and you're brand new in the Lord because Christ lives in you, you're equipped to be able to share the love of Jesus Christ. The pressure's really put on him. And he shows great wisdom in not trying to answer things he doesn't know. He's saying, I don't really know whether Jesus is a sinner or not. He, he's just beginning his, his knowledge of, of Jesus Christ. So somebody asks you a really tough question, it is great wisdom to say, I don't know. But let me get back to you on that, and I'll do some research. And there's some great websites out there. A really good website, you might want to write it down, it's just gotquestions.org. And everything that I've looked up there has been biblically accurate. It's a great resource to go and get answers to ask questions. Call Pastor Dan here at the office. He's a great resource. You know, email him. He's going to love me for saying this. You know, but come and talk to one of the pastors. Talk with a friend. Get in the scriptures for yourself. But it's okay to say, I don't know. I do it all the time. I get stumped. And I say, you know, I don't know. But let me get back to you. I'll research it and I will get back to you. And, and he says this, I don't know. But then he does share what he knows. And he says, I know I was blind, and now I see. I was born blind, but right now, standing in front of you, I can see. One of the things that we found woven through scripture is the power of testimony. In the book of Revelation, we find Satan is overcome by the word of their testimony is one of the things that is listed there. And what is your testimony? It's God's working in your life. I like to put it this way. It's God's story in your life. It's not about us. It's about God and how he came to our broken state, our sinful state, and he saved us and brought us grace and salvation. And this is a good exercise for all of us to do is be ready at any moment to share your testimony and share God's story in your life. And if you think that you have to have had served prison time in order to have an effective testimony for God, that's not necessarily true. If you have served prison time and God got a hold of your life, praise the Lord, share that. But you know what? If you haven't done prison time, that's also a testimony to the grace of God because you're capable. <laughs> and I'm capable, right? We're all capable. And so if the Lord has kept us out of those things, that's something to be able to share. Hey, this is my heart. I know that I would have been caught up in all of these things, but God got a hold of my life at the perfect time. God spared me from those things. And sometimes young people that grow up in the church, they struggle with this. And they go, you know, I received Christ as my savior as a six-year-old at VBS or in my bedroom at, at home. And I, I don't really have this crazy, wild past. And so I don't have a testimony to share. No, you have a testimony to share. You know, God gave you godly parents, put you in a godly home, spared you from all these things to be able to share that. But the opposite is true as well. Is, this is my life. This is the pit that God rescued me from and, and saved me from. And see, this is the glory of God is because everybody's story is different. So don't compare your story with somebody else's story. It's God's story in your life. But in a fairly concise way, you want to describe what your life was like before Christ, how God in intervened, and what God is doing right now. And no one can take that away from you. They can't say, well, that's not true. God didn't do that in your life. You're living proof 
that your life has changed. You were blind, but now you see. You're a sinner, but now you're saved by God's grace. He pursued you, he found you, he, he loves you. Paul, as he is recorded in the book of Acts, his testimony is shared three times, and it's pretty much the same every single time. And you're familiar, he was opposed to the things of Christ and God radically saved him. Why is that? Because God's showing us the power of a testimony. We're giving God the glory when we share what he has done and is doing in our lives. A lot of times we think a testimony is just our salvation experience. That's the majority of it, but salvation is continuing in our lives and we're also sharing what God is doing in our lives this week. This is what I find. When I go to a good wedding where there's a couple that's committing themselves to the Lord and to each other, it reminds me of the special things in my marriage. Doesn't it do that for you as well? It kind of touches your heart in that way. And when I share my testimony, it does the same thing. I'm reminded of, oh God, you love me. I remember that day when you got a hold of my life. I remember when you showed me your love when I was such a wretch and didn't care for you and you walk away just encouraged. We find in the scriptures it tells us how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And it literally means happy feet. If we want depressed feet, think about our own situation. But if we go out and share the gospel, share our testimony, we return with happy feet because it does something inside of us that go, oh yeah, I'm loved by God. And God loves this person that I shared with. I was blind, and now I see it's the power of a testimony. In verse 26, And they said to him again, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Why are they asking this? Because they're building a case against Jesus, accusing him of working on the Sabbath. He answered them, I told you already, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? (laughs) great sense of humor, right, by this guy. I think that this got developed from him being streetwise. I bet he used this sarcasm and sense of humor many times as a beggar, as people were ridiculing him and putting him down. Okay, have a nice day. See you later. You know, he, he had this wit about him, and he brings this to these guys. Then they reviled him and said, You are his disciples, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we don't know where he is from. Then the man answered and said to them, Why, this is a marvelous thing, that you don't know where he's from, yet he's opened my eyes. Now we know that God doesn't hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears them. Since the world began... It has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man was not from God, he could do nothing. And of course, we know that God does hear sinners in the sense of when we cry out for salvation. But what this blind man, this formerly blind man is saying is there has to be something to Jesus because I was born blind and now I see There must be righteousness about him because we don't see this happening every day. It's unheard of. And the same is true today. How many people have you met who were born blind, who they go to the eye doctor and the eye doctor is able to bring back their sight? If they're born with cataracts, that's another issue that can sometimes be helped. 
but to be born where you're blind and you don't, you don't work. And that's his point that he's saying. He's, he's saying you have to stop and consider Jesus because of the work that has been done. In verse 34, they answered and they said to him, you are completely born in sins and are you teaching us? And they cast him out. What did they say to him? Somebody in your family really messed up and you were born in sin. And maybe it was you in the womb or maybe it was your parents and we're not listening to you because you're a dirty, rotten sinner. These guys, the Pharisees, have this pattern of demonizing whoever's bringing them the truth to keep them from having to deal with the issue and looking at truth in a straightforward manner. And they cast him out. And this would have been a low point for this man. Getting cast out of the synagogue is you're completely ostracized from your social structure. It's not just that he couldn't come to the synagogue, but he would be an outcast from his family, from the whole Jewish community, every place that they interacted with him. In verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he found him, he said to him, do you believe in the Son of God? Jesus pursues this man twice, and this touched my heart today in looking and studying in this. As we serve a God that pursues us, and he comes to this man to, to heal his blindness physically. But that was the first work. And now he comes the second time so that this man will have something greater in its spiritual eyesight. Now, it's more than enough and awe-inspiring if we happen to seek God that he would allow us to seek him. And he does. But even more so, sometimes when we're not seeking him, he pursues us. What, what do we deserve of that? I don't deserve that. This blind man doesn't deserve that. That's just the complete, pure love of God being displayed to come to him, to find him, then to say, do you believe in the Son of God? And the Son of God was a phrase that they knew well as Jews. It was a title for the Messiah. It was God and human flesh. Do you believe in God coming in human flesh, the Messiah? Verse 36, he answered and said, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Now, sometimes when you're just talking with people, they're ready. They're completely ready to receive Christ. And that's this man. He's like, man, if I just knew who he was, I, I believe, I'm ready to believe. In verse 37, and Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. And remember, eyesight's brand new for this guy. And Jesus is saying, hey, you're seeing him. So not only did he get to see his family for the first time in the color green, but he got to see the face of Jesus Christ. And he's looking into the face of Jesus Christ and Jesus is saying, I'm it, I'm right here. I'm the son of God. Notice the response in verse 38. Then he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped. Lord, I believe, and he worshiped. I love this. When he came to the knowledge of Jesus Christ, he responded in faith. What happens when we respond in faith? that Jesus is God, that he died for our sins and rose again, we're saved. We're given the gift of salvation. And then hopefully what flows out of salvation is worship. It's not worshiping to try to earn or deserve salvation. It's worshiping because we are saved. This man's worshiping because he's received his spiritual eyesight and his physical eyesight. And his spiritual eyesight's even more important than his physical eyesight, amen? This is the moment where he's impacted for all eternity and he can't help but worship. 
Throughout scripture, worship is a response to the knowledge of God. Isaiah, when he sees the throne of God, he begins to worship and he says, woe is me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. Saul, who we just talked about, when Jesus revealed himself to Saul, Saul worshiped. He said, Lord, what do you want me to do? That's worship, that's surrendered to God. When John, the disciple, in the book of Revelation, has the revelation of Jesus Christ, what does he do? He gets on his face and he worships before the Lord. And that's what happens in our hearts and in our lives. Paul, in every one of his letters to the churches that he was ministering to, he always prayed for the knowledge of Christ to be deepened, to be strengthened, because that's what we need in our lives. That's what we can be praying for each other, is that we would have a greater knowledge of Christ, not just the academic knowledge but the intimate and personal knowledge of Christ, because as we see who he is, then we respond in worship. And when we respond in worship, then things start to fall in place in our lives. Now hear me out on this. If you're having difficulty in your marriage, you're not having a marriage problem, you're having a worship problem. It actually has nothing to do with your spouse. And it has to do with you. It has to do with me because we can fulfill the role that God wants us to do in our marriages, regardless of what our spouse is doing, if our eyes are on Jesus, amen? And so as we see who he is, we go, God, I wanna worship you in my marriage. We can look at every problem in our lives and we can go back and say, the real problem that I have is a worship problem. I don't understand who God is. I don't understand who Jesus is. I don't understand how much he loves me and how present he is in this situation. And if I could get my eyes on him and begin to worship him, seek first the kingdom, then all these things will be added to us. I'm not saying that it's easy. I'm not saying this is just some magic formula that happens. But I do know this and I understand this. What I really need in my life is the knowledge of Christ in a greater way and to worship him. And everything else flows from that place of worship. In verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may be made blind. Did you catch that? Let's go through that. Jesus said, I've come to judge the world. A judge has to deal with the decisions that somebody else has made. And that's Christ's role. He deals with the decisions that people make specifically about the light of the world. So how does he judge? He says that those who do not see may see. The blind man knew he had no sight, and he was ready to receive sight, both physically and spiritually. This is a lesson about spiritual sight, first and foremost. So as Christ works in the world, he saves those who know they're spiritually blind, who know there's something wrong with me, I'm a sinner. I have a sin problem. I need Christ to work in my life. People that think they have the answer are the ones who receive the judgment of God. So those that know their own blindness are the ones who are saved. But the end of verse 39 says, those who may see may be made blind. The Pharisees thought they had it all figured out. They thought they had spiritual understanding wrapped up in a box, and they needed to understand first and foremost that they were blind. What's the most deceptive way for Satan to get people to hell? Is to make them think that they have it all figured out through religion. And that's why we see so many false religions. And people feel like, I don't need Christ. 
I don't need someone to die for my sins. I've got this works-based religion that's gonna get me eternal life. So one of the things that we can pray for for people that don't know Christ is that the blinders would be removed, that they would understand their need for Jesus Christ in their life. In verse 40, then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words, and they said to him, are we blind also? And I think this is with a ton of attitude. Like, and am I blind too? Is that what you're saying? Yes, very much so. You guys are absolutely blind, but you think that you see. In verse 41, Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin, but now you say, we see, therefore your sin remains. So if they would have understood they're blind spiritually, then they would have been in a place to receive salvation. But instead, they were in this place of feeling that we have it all together. We see, and therefore their sin remains. Remember in Luke chapter 18, two people came into the Lord's presence. There was a tax collector, and what was his attitude? He would beat his chest and lay on his face and pray for forgiveness. And says, I'm not even worthy to lift my eyes to, to the Lord. And then there was the Pharisee who came in and said, oh Lord, thank you that I'm not like this person and I'm not like that person and I'm not all messed up and all those types of things. And then what did Jesus say? Who went home justified? It was the tax collector who realized his own blindness, who was poor in spirit. The way of seeing is the way of the blind. Now think about that for just a moment. The way of seeing is the way of the blind. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. It is not our littleness that hinders Christ, but our bigness. It's not our weakness that hinders Christ, it's our strength. It's not our darkness that hinders Christ, it's our supposed light that holds back his hand and how true that is. I like this paragraph by Kent Hughes. It kind of sums up this chapter well. The way of seeing is essentially a willingness to admit we're blind and naked and hungry. The blind beggar of John 9 is our example. He did not argue with Christ. He acknowledged his blind condition and need. He submitted himself to the hand of Christ and was obedient. And then came the miracle, and so that he saw with his eyes and with his heart. Remember, great partakers are great beggars. Don't you love that? Remember, great partakers are great beggars. Those who are empty will be filled. The blind will see. Three questions, and then we'll be done. The first is this, is do I share with confidence what Christ has done in my life? Do I share with confidence what Christ has done in my life? Never, ever be ashamed of what Christ has done in your life. Never dumb it down for somebody. Never say, I'm gonna back down and just give this credit to chance or give this credit to something in my character. No, we were blind, broken beggars at God's door, and he did the work in our lives. And we should share that with confidence. Not in arrogance, but in confidence. This is what God has done in my life. Do I believe that God wants to work in my life personally? Have we gone through this whole entire chapter going, well, that's great for the blind guy, but Christ seems very absent in my life. 
this is all about God's love for the individual. We have more recorded about what Christ did on one-on-one interactions with people than his sermons. And his sermons are wonderful, but what God really wants us to know is that he loves individuals, that you're not just a number to God. He knows specifically what's going on in your life, and he wants to work personally in your life tonight. And do you believe that? That we have an active, present Savior that wants to work in our lives this evening. And I think this is the most important tonight, is could I be in darkness? And that's a tough question to ask. But could I be in darkness? We find a group in John 9 that was extremely convinced that they were in the light and they missed the incarnate light of the world right in front of their eyes and planned his crucifixion. And tonight, I just want to ask the very simple question, have you come to the place of knowing that you're poor in spirit, that you can do nothing to save yourself, and have cried out to God for his forgiveness that can only come through Jesus Christ. And you know your heart, and you know if the answer is yes. If the answer is yes, the spirit of God's bearing witness inside of you that you remember that time, and you know that you've opened up your heart to Christ and realized your need for a savior. And if the answer is no, tonight is the night of salvation. Tonight's the night. God has you here for a specific reason. And as we come to communion, You go to the Lord and you cry out and you say, Jesus, save me. I believe that you're God, that you died for my sins and rose again. And I realize my brokenness, my sinfulness. And would you save me? And would you be my Lord? Prayer team's gonna be available here on the side and we'd love for you to come and say, I'm ready to receive Christ as my savior. But you can also do it right where you're at. But the important thing is, is have you come into the light of God? but also for us as believers, for us as the children of God. Is there a part of our lives we've shut out God's light? Where he's saying, I wanna bring light into this area of your heart. And maybe it's your thought life, and it has to do with bitterness, or it has to do with lust. And for some reason, we know Christ is our savior. We belong to him, but we're saying, I I wanna live in this dark recess of sin. And God's saying, no, I wanna come and bring light into this place. I wanna come and bring eyesight and wisdom into this place. Is there some part of your marriage that God wants to touch that's in darkness and it's hindering and it's breaking the marriage? My heart goes out to the marriages of our church and the marriages throughout the world and God desperately wants to work. But we've got to be willing to say, I'm going to bring that to the light of God. We know what it is, and we're wrestling. And God wants to do a work in our hearts and in our lives tonight. And this is what I fear for my life and for our lives, is as we come and we hear the word, that we don't be doers of the word. And Robert exhorted us in that this weekend from James chapter 1, to be doers of the word. So part of being doers of the word is to let the light of God's love flood us. We don't have anything to fear. What do we have to lose? The dirty rottenness of sin. And the light of God's love for him to come and forgive us, to transform us, and to change us. And no better place than at the communion table. Jesus told us here in a few more chapters in John that he now makes his home in us. Father, the Son, 
the Spirit, all living inside of us. So God lives inside of you for your believer. And examine, Lord, what kind of home am I for you, really? And am I allowing your light to completely have its place in my heart and in my life? So let's pray.